This episode is brought to you by Virginia Fat's Super High Tar Cigars. Medical boffins will tell you that tobacco can cause an increase in the long-term chance of cancer, emphysema, and heart disease. But famous celebrities will tell you that the constant threat of being recognized on the street is killer stress as well. Don't let that happen to you. Do you want paparazzi photographing you at the grocery store or strangers asking you to autograph their body parts? Then do what famous people the world over do to avoid the unwelcomed ogling of the public. They use the concealing and distracting black fog produced by Virginia Fat Super High Tar Cigars. These billowing stogies generate a constant cumulus haze that makes recognition, let alone photographic capture, practically impossible. That's why today on the sidewalks of Los Angeles, New York City, and remote towns in Idaho and Montana, you can find all your media sinishers hiding out in their obsidian thunderclouds of personal carcinogenic bubbles. Walk the streets in total anonymity, just like pop stars and movie idols with Virginia Fats. And when you order, use the promo code RERED, one word, to try Virginia Fats Motes, the little cigars for your little influencers. And thank you, Virginia Fat Super High Tar Cigars, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. The Surgeon General warns that smoking cigars will not send you to hell, but will make you smell like you live there. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hi, James. <laughs> Although we're starting backwards again. So I'm going to be the one reading the, the comments this time. So and, yeah, that's true. And swap out. But we're we're halfway through the tale of student of his son. And we've gotten one really, really long comment from Mike Farrar, um, which is actually multiple days of comments that he keeps adding to. So we thought <laughs> maybe rather than than talk about that. Let's wait till we finish this one then, because he might may well go back and add more stuff. And then we'll, we'll yeah, talk about that next time. He may get a new idea. He may this, this, this story is not done yet. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. But um, but we did get some comments on Cian Greening's reader interview. All very positive. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, and then a couple things about the Christmas story. So I thought we'd go over that first and then get to the story. So first on Facebook, Mark Menderano wrote in to say that he's been catching up on a bunch of episodes and had some questions about Fool's Fire. He said, hey, guys, I just finished the Fool's Fire episode and wanted to chime in on Jonas's panic attack. You guys have commented often, and I agree that Jonas seems readily adaptable to his circumstances. Within hours of meeting Severian, it seems he lands himself a role as sidekick, helper, advisor, friend, confidant. And seems perfectly content to roll with the punches, fairly literally. Yes, that's absolutely true. So maybe he is, quote unquote, programmed to not resist a new orientation among humans once he's accepted a new situation. Maybe that's a part of his primary you know, directive. Um, in the antechamber, finding himself among people who've been there at least for generations, if not millennia, he senses or knows that with a few days or even hours, he'll adapt to this new environment and lose the impetus to leave. He knows he needs to get the hell out of there ASAP or he'll never be able to. 
I think other huh. things may be able to play it well with his human parts, but I think the key thing is that his robot side would tell him after a short while, befriend these people, comfort them, advise them, and he, with his cyborg longevity, would get himself stuck in that room for centuries. Now, I, I actually, I don't, I don't know if there's enough to say that this is true or not, but I really like the idea. Um, you know, it does stack a few speculations on top of each other. And we have no problem with that. No, here. no. So. And I feel like this one actually does make some sense. Um, it would explain a lot of things about Jonas all at once, like, like why he's so easy to be friends with Severian, um, possibly why he so quickly gets attached to Jalenta after just, you know, seeing her once um, and Although I don't know, would he would he wouldn't he have been attached to any woman he saw before then? I don't know. But, yeah, but it yeah. also kind of explains his freak out. Um, but so still, I I feel like this one does a really good job of like finding one explanation that it co- possibly explains a lot of things. The trick yeah, is just yeah. not not knowing whether or not there's enough in the text to really really make it seem that yeah, that's his programming and that's why that's why he's doing this. So. Yeah, yeah, it definitely requires that you posit a single solution and then kind of go with it. And it, and it, it works. Um, I'm really not in any position to, uh, to argue against that methodology. That's the the methodology is solid, but what I would like to see is something that might have disconfirmed it, that you could have possibly said, well, if things had gone differently, if he had acted differently, then it would mean that it would be, Mm. he'd be a different sort of person. Yeah. I don't know. The, yeah. the truth is that it is self-consistent within the antechamber. That's yeah. the most anyone has been able to pull off. Yeah. And I just like it because it's, it's, it's totally new. I think, I don't think anyone's ever suggested that before that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. He's got to, he's got to get out or else he's going to settle. He's going to, he's a nesting robot. <laughs> I like that nesting. Yeah. So also on Facebook, uh, let's see, David Dines. One time. Had a more general question. About what's been said about Severian and women, and I bring this up to see if anyone else can remember anything, but uh, he just asked, wondering if there have been any analyses of the New Sun books, including Earth, that focus on Severian's relationship with women. I'm not looking for quick takes like he's sexist, but something more along the lines of, do the women he travels with and partners with develop his viability as the New Sun? Mm. What is his choice of Valeria at the conclusion show? He says he's going to try and focus that on his next reread, but, um, but wanted to know. And I, I know I said on there, I don't know of any, um, I know that Mark likes to talk about how women often serve allegorical roles in a lot of wolf stuff. Um, and I kind of piggybacked a little bit on that idea. I know in the, um, our summary of shadow episode where I talked about, um, how the three main women seem like they're kind of like developments of maturity in a little mm-hmm. bit like so you got Thecla who's a crush you've got a more sexual relationship with Asia and then you get sort of a full relationship or at least more of a full relationship with Dorcas um but beyond that I don't know of anyone who's really gone into a whole lot of detail on that um yeah. but I do think it needs to to be done like because it seems like anytime online you bring up the way that wolf uses women it quickly sort of devolves into you know whether he's sexist or not and that's not a particularly useful conversation anymore at least yeah. it just gets away from the text I think. right i well in response to, to david's uh question i posted a couple paragraphs from gene wolf's interview with robert frazier 
which can be found online from in Thrust, uh, spring of 1983, I believe, and also in Shadows of the New Sun by Peter Wright. And in that interview, Wolf said that Severian is deeply scarred by his early separation from his mother and that he tends to gravitate to women who remind him of his mother, uh, women like Thecla or Thea, who are very large, uh, like Jaterna, obviously, that um, um, Jalinta has very large breasts, or women who are guides, like Dorcas, like Asia. And it has made me think a lot, and I guess I'll probably take this up in the summary, but because I now believe that Thecla is in some sense Severian's mother, it causes me to wonder about Asia that he fell for her so quickly, so hard, and so solidly, and makes me uh, create a brand new thread of possibility about Asia's uh, backstory. Hmm. Yeah. Of all of them, she fits the mother role sort of least, <laughs> I think. Yes, in, in, yes. Sort of, in some ways... The shadow mother or something like that. I don't know. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he falls for Thecla immediately and he falls for Asia, perhaps even harder. Yeah. So David, there's a lot to start with, but no, if you're going to work on that next time you go through it, take notes, write it up. Yes. We'll yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Still on Facebook, um, Daniel Baradas uh, said that he visited the Anthropology Museum in Mexico City. And while he was there, I thought this was cool. He took a couple pictures of a couple plaques that they had talking about sun worship mm -hmm. in ancient Mesoamerica. So I just wanted to read some clips of this just because I thought it was really cool and absolutely applicable to what we're talking about. It says the pre-Hispanic peoples considered the light and warmth of the sun to be equal to life itself. Therefore, their creation myth saw in the presence and destruction of that star the precarious nature of life and the need for men to help maintain the sun as the supreme deity. So we're already in sort of a different world from, I think, how most of like Western symbolism looks at the sun as like the permanent God that's always mm -hmm. the source of light and, and almost like a, you know, a, a kind of highest ideal up there. But I love this about that in... Aztec and other approaches, you needed to maintain it. Like it was you are, right. It would be constantly going out to go through. Yeah. Um, it's not the unblinking eye of Greek exactly. mythology. It's but uh, another part that, that gets back to a little bit about creation. It says the four elements of life having come together, earth, wind, fire, and water in the fifth creation. It was the turn of two other noumena um, or gods who I'm not even going to try to pronounce. particularly. Um, <laughs> who became the sun and moon respectively for this act of generation to take place. Both gods had to set themselves on fire. That's why when man was created, he had to repay the gods with his own blood and the fruit of his enemies. Hmm. So here's this whole thing that regeneration really does require self-sacrifice. We get more of a little bit more of a kind of mythology that sounds a bit more like Severian and, mm -hmm. and a little less like a typical Greek thing. Um, but I like this. And then the last paragraph gets right to the point in a lot of ways. The sun is the victorious warrior who defeats or puts to flight his opponents, the moon and the stars. It clears away the shadows and the darkness and brings the light and warmth that illuminates the universe. Its rays penetrate the earth, fertilizing it and allowing plants to grow. It's the bringer of life in general. 
Maybe. Yeah, well, that's definitely the book of the new sun there. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I don't know that. Well, I mean, in some ways, I suppose if if Erebus and the other monsters are, are creatures from the stars in some way, then there's that. We don't really get much of moon symbolism quite so much in, in new sun. But this whole idea about the point being bringing life and um, that light actually engendering life and causing life. Yeah, it's it's really cool. So it was just a nice sort of way that that hooks up and it's not surprising but it if anything it makes me wonder you know because this was set in south america was wolf reading some kind of stuff about mesoamerican mythology at the time and i definitely think he was yeah what's really cool about that is it's so different from what most people assume like they start to figure out some of the symbolism of new sun and they're like oh okay well it's another christian story but if it's doing something else if it's sort of him retelling something about how this pattern shows up in Mesoamerican types of patterns, that's a different aspect than we normally get. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, again, we don't know exactly what he was reading, but anyway, that was just a really useful thing. So thank you so much for sharing that because yeah. it, it just clarified a bunch. Of yeah, that was great. Okay. So I um, had a few questions and comments on the Christmas bonus on our story, the bit, how the mm. Bishop sailed to Ennis Keen. Um, first Austin Beeman, uh, said great show, really loved the wolf ghost story, but he did offer one thing. He said one clarification said he thinks that fence, the stone meant, uh, stole it or sold it, sold it. I think sold it, yeah. sold it, sold it, which, which actually does make uh, some sort of sense if she took yeah. it and sold it to a museum. Yeah. Maybe. I couldn't remember if it said fenced or fenced in. So hold on one second. <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, I knew already that she was the one who had fenced the Cromlech at the summit of the island. At the summit. Uh, well, yeah, okay. The Krom- She didn't fence the stone. She fenced the Cromlech. It says who fenced the stone at the Cromlech. The, the trick there is that a Cromlech is usually, like we said, like a big standing stone. So it would be really hard to move it. Yeah, you couldn't. Um, because it would be huge. Yeah. So in context, I think it might still be like built a fence around it. Um, but I think, yeah, the language would support him. So, yeah, but it's this wouldn't be the stone here is not not the the stone that um, he pulled out of the water. This is something else. Yeah, this is a big like a like a Stonehenge stone that's standing up there. Right. So, OK, good catch, though, because that was I was totally not thinking that at all when it was there. So oh, I was I thought says fence the stone, fence the stone. But yeah, I still think I think you were right. I think you're right with. With uh, respect to my own uh, speculations and 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 this one as well, um, <laughs> I still think you you, you came down the right one. Woo-hoo. So, Michael Under, do you see? had a whole lot to say about this story too on Reddit, and so a lot of fun questions that he asked. Just wanted to pull out a couple. Um, with all these notes and traces, I find it curious that we don't have the bishop's motive for taking the stone. Yeah. Granted, the notes and traces show tension with the church over the stone. I'm saying that, as I understand it, the fiction does not give a direct motive to the bishop. We can speculate that it was to cause a new mysterious miracle and or one pious guy cleaning up a little historical mess on his way. (laughs) Ghosts do mysterious things, to be sure. Um, So, yeah, that is certainly part of it. And, And I suppose I didn't necessarily wonder about it because i think i thought too it was just kind of like a, a yeah it's an it's an odd it's a ghostly yeah. thing um because yeah that's the ghost doing it and the ghost maybe wanting something 
um, or wanting to cause some kind of calmness in the water right. so that people could come over the water every Christmas Eve. Possible? Well, you know, I, here's one thing. I think it's important in a narrative sense that the, both the taking of the stone and the leaving of the letter, if you believe that the letter was actually delivered that night, remember mm -hmm. that this is told second, third hand, but still by him taking the stone and it being left in the ocean, you have a physical uh, evidence of the bishop being there as opposed true. to just some sort of mass psychosis. Yeah, that is true. Which makes it creepier, right? Mm -hmm. As a reader, you're trying to justify it, figure it out. Eh, well, maybe it was this, maybe, maybe what really happened was that. But you really can't get down to a real timeline on this thing. And, and the letter is, is something that also makes it very difficult because if the priest had written a letter saying that the, the bishop had drowned on the way and it was written two days later, then how did that priest actually send that letter? How did he think it was being sent? Yep. No, that's, that's a trickier sort of mechanics question. Yeah. And the same thing with the, with the stone in the, in the water. I mean, they disappeared at the dock, but really, you know, this, where was the stone? Mm. It was, it was yeah. obviously deeper into, in the water than just the, the dock. I don't know. I think I, all of that uncanniness is part of what adds the, 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 ghost the scariness story, the of the ghost story. Yeah. Yep. Totally. So a um, couple other things, one connection to peace, the echoes to peace involve both quote, the object holds the ghost down and to the stone pillow. Mm. Add to this, the text itself says that the stone pillow was initially a suffering for the saint. So it was used as a burden for the benefit of others. I note all this because the text says that the stone may have held the bishop down or been his pillow, and the holding him down aspect would then be nullified by the removal of the stone by the lady from Dublin. And yeah. What year was that? How long prior to the narrative setting? That is to say, this train of thought suggests that the ghost of the bishop has only come around since the stone was taken away. And um, I'm not quite sure on that one. I mean, yeah. it seemed to be legendary that it was just after this happened was when all these these things um, yeah that one i mean i think you're i think that's trying to apply a bit of mechanical logic to this story that is is really defied by this story yeah, at every term so. and that which like i said is part of the creepiness of it you keep yeah. trying to piece it together into some sort of logical machine and you can't yeah, yeah. And he, there was one other question he had that I feel like somebody else had asked and I couldn't find it, but he said, um, is there a ghost mass every year or are all the ghosts waiting? And if they're waiting, that adds more pressure on the narrator since maybe a mortal is required to be there in attendance since mortals were at the special one. At the first one, there were two ghosts, Bishop and Boatman and a bunch of mortals. So maybe at the next one for symmetry, there should be two mortals and a bunch of ghosts. Um, <sighs> I'm not so sure. Uh, the pushing the symmetry... Mantis may be a little harsh on that one, but um, but the the question about was there did this happen every year or is this a special thing? Somebody I feel like either somebody else asked it or I thought about yeah. it and sort of turned it into something else. But that was an interesting question. Well, if it's literally true, then everybody, you, me, everybody, we all have to go to Inneskeep Island, right? Mm -hmm. On at some point and attend that mass. And in an odd way, being. Being a Christian story, having there be one time when you're supposed to go kind of 
works. I mean, it's a mythic mm-hmm. time that you go, it seems like, but it's just like there is a single resurrection. There is a single salvation mm-hmm. at the end of everything. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's a, like I said, well, like I said in the, in our discussion, I think it's a metaphor. I think it's a metaphor for the call to Christ. You know, the, the bishop is, is like a, a Jesus who's yeah. calling us to the mass. And if you don't go, you know, at some point you're going to have to show up anyway. Okay, so let's see. Um, we also had our C and Greening interview, which if you haven't listened to that one yet, please do. Even not so, I mean, the Wolf stuff in there is good, but also just her story is incredibly compelling. And loads of people commented that it was one of the best reader interviews that we've done. Yeah. Mainly just because she was so willing to be so candid and open about her experience. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. so lots of, of, of just praise for her. Uh, one set of questions, again, Manus, again, Michael, uh, had some more really just kind of responding to her, but a couple things that I thought were were interesting. First, he said, Sian Greening had questions about the red sun of Earth, and for what it's worth, here are my thoughts. She felt that the red sun is not what's expected in the future of our sun through its natural life, and I agree. Based on this, she infers that something weird and not natural happened to the sun at some point in the past, something done by some beings for unknown purposes, and she offers the Cacogens as a likely candidate. And I agree it was likely something done in the past. And I just wanted to bring that up because that's something that we've hinted at so far, but we haven't really gotten into the bigger backstory or the sort of larger story that's going Mm -hmm. on here. Um, And we do know, of course, that they talk about there being a worm at the heart of the sun at some point. Right. I just know people have argued forever about whether that was, you know, intentionally put there by the Asadis in order to to push us towards this or something like that. Um, and other people wonder if it's just, it, I will say I'm kind of, I tend to agree with them that I don't feel like this is just the natural burning out of the sun. No, no, no. I think that's, that's, I think that is emphatically stated by the Autark in Severian's conversation with him. However, I don't bury the lead. I think one of the interesting, the mo, I think the most interesting citation that Michael made in that response was that when Severian goes back into deep time and becomes Apapunchao, the sun that he sees is red. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, yellow or, or something. Yeah. Suggesting that even at this at this point, the um, the worm is already in the heart of the sun, and I don't know how to deal with that yet. I might get to save that for some years from now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it immediately raises questions. Yeah, because I think I've always thought of Epipunchao as being you know deep in our past. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. Did he bring his son with him, or was that just in Severian's past and in some cycle? Make it worse. (laughs) I know. I know. We got a long way to go before we get there. Yeah. Just a couple quick things on Tale of the Student and a Son before we get to the rest of it in this, which we are going to finish the story today. Um, <laughs> I think we had warned or we had threatened somewhere that we would do one episode on each of the five parts, but I, that original, that's the way I originally imagined it. Yeah, honestly, so we, but we, we, we did better. Yeah. One, we just have to pat ourselves on the back. Mike Benowitz said, this is a wonderful episode. One of the best the Hamlet's mill lens on this sub story sheds light on the whole novel. For me, this was fairly impenetrable to me, but now I feel like I see that this is one of the maps for how to understand the book at large. 
in it, drawing analogies to mythic figures. No, you're not. You've actually come up with a good story. Uh, <laughs> and also ignorant when it comes to astronomy and astrology. So he just said, thanks. So just wanted to yeah. pat ourselves on the back Yay. and also just tell Mike he's wrong because he actually has come up with some really yeah, he has, cool he, sort of mythic He's very mythic good at analogies. Who are we kidding? I do think that Hamlet's does help a lot when you get to what the heck is a Navascaput? And it all kind of ties together if you look at it just quite right. And one one other bit of praise I do agree with is that Stuart Ham said that we were better at summing up Hamlet's Mill than Hamlet's Mill was. <laughs> and I, I do agree with that. Absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a layup. That's easily done. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think, I think personally, I think Gene Wolfe did that as well. And yeah, he he was my guide. So yeah, yeah. So I did want to read one other comment about this um, because I, and he called it his own mundane interpretation, but Gary Owens. Gary, Indiana. What a wonderful name. Had um, some context too, which I think is useful if you're not, you know, if you didn't spend a whole lot of time around professors and especially PhD programs. So, um, but he says, uh, the setting for Tale of Student Sun is a prestigious university. The pale towers, the ivory towers of higher education. Students either graduate and seek their trade in the outside world or earn their PhDs and remain in the guild, quote unquote, of academia. In our world, a hooding ceremony is a special recognition for graduates receiving a final master's or PhD with the color of the ceremonial regalia depending on the degree earned. And he gives the whole cool thing. Mm. Mine's, mine's blue. <laughs> so, or, <laughs> and, and so the way he, he sees this is, the student struggling with his PhD thesis, which he must eventually submit to the faculty of his school. His advisor is able to allow him some grace and advice. Eventually, the student is able to develop a powerful philosophical and or political school of thought, such as the ideas forming the basis of the Enlightenment or Marxism in a contemporary context. The ism is sent out in the world to battle the ogre, the dominant and oppressive power structure of the age. Eventually, the idea confronts the ogre, but has evolved and changed well beyond the control or the desires of the student. Revolution eats its own. And then <laughs> essentially, that's why the student has to die in the end. Um, is it, and, well, is that realistic to you? Does, or, that, does right, that sing right. for you? It does map the pattern of that onto it. Um, I, the trick with that is that the student seems way more fleshed than an ism. I guess like that's to me, I actually read kind of the trend of how the narrative goes. It seems more like it could be an allegory for academic life in the first part, but not so much by the end. Like by the end, we seem like we're in a totally different world that is completely not about students anymore at all. Yeah. Now, I mean, we're, we're talking how to interpret, you know, really vague symbols like this. So, right could be but i like the general way to explain it it does make it a whole lot more sort of allegorical very directly mm -hmm. but when we talk about this as if it was you know a phd thesis and an ism then i feel like it's uh, two things one it's it's a little further away from severian and jonas and whatever else is going on mm -hmm. um and second we know that Wolf's attitude towards the academics that he had had would not be quite. <laughs> he loved to, yeah, he didn't like to champion academics. No, he tended no, he, to like to poke fun at them a little bit. Right. He was very, he was very G.K. Chesterton. Right. Tony right. And, and especially literary people, like literary scholars. He wasn't a big, yeah. big fan of. So, but it is a cool way to, to map that on there. I'd, I'd have to think more about whether or not the student represents some kind of ism or theory or idea. Um, 
and and what the ogre then would represent because i of course the big general battle between the two um kind of fits that but but seems like it ought to be more pointed in some way or another yeah. gary even said in there that it's you know it could be everything from philosophical to political to who knows yeah. what so that's right. um, but i don't know kudos man yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Still, that's a if you can summarize one of these things, that's that's good work. Well done, well done. So, like we said, Mike Ferrar did have his own thesis that he put up on Reddit, so you should definitely go check it out in preparation. We'll talk about it next time. But otherwise, I say we get back into the story itself. Yeah, and if you want to hear what I have become convinced was the real walnut that Wolf wound this string around at the beginning of the tale of the student and the son, then pluck down your $2 and listen to us talk for an hour about Jorge Luis Borges's the circular ruins. Yes. I put a sort of vague booking note up on Facebook last week that mm-hmm. James and I think we've pretty well made a really solid case for a Borges story being a source for yeah. Tale of the Student and the Sun. We did that after we recorded what's coming up here. So we didn't get into a whole lot of detail <laughs> about it. But yeah, if you want to take a listen to that, um, exactly how that works, that's that's yeah. up on the, the Patreon. Episode. Yeah, you've got students, you've got sons, you've got magicians. It's all there. James and I are always thrilled when we have new patrons to thank, and this time we have five. First, we have three journeymen, Oswald S., Taylor Britt, and Adrian Tchaikovsky. And if you're wondering if that Adrian Tchaikovsky is the Arthur C. Clarke award-winning author of Children of Time, you would be correct. At the master level, we have two new patrons as well. First, Brett Loftiness. Brett, 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 Brett. And Derek Varn. James and I are always happy to see his name because he was the first one to ever interview us on his own podcast, and we may just have to throw a link up there just again for the fun of it. But as always, thank you to everybody who signs up on Patreon. Remember that no matter what level you sign up on, $2 or $5 a month, you can always get access to all the extra episodes that we put up there, including the one we just talked about. Check out patreon.com slash rereadingwolf or check the notes to this show and you'll see a link there. Chapter 17, The Tale of the Student and His Son. Part 3, The Encounter with the Princess. Which was not written by George MacDonald. No, not well. And there's also no goblin here. Well, maybe there's not a goblin. I don't know. Well, there Actually, there's also a curdy. So, mm. Princess and the curdy. I think there was other princess yeah. books too he wrote. Well, um, we're already deep in it. I guess we'll just uh, go ahead and start this section right out. Let us push through this labyrinth of a tale without really knowing where we're going. Yeah. (laughs) Then the young man fared forth and gathered to him other young men of the city of the magicians to be his crew. And from those who wore the colored hoods, he obtained a stout ship. And all that summer, he and the young men, he had gathered to him armored her and mounted on her sides the mightiest artillery, and a hundred times practiced the makings of sail, and the reefing of the sail, and the firing of the guns, until she answered as a blooded mare does to the rain. 
For the pity they felt for the corn maidens, they christened her Land of Virgins. Ah, so he's got his ship, right? Yeah. It struck me this time how the language here, I mean, he, he's certainly telling it more like a fable, but this one actually reminds me of stuff from Cimmerillion. I don't know, just the cadences. Mm. I, I mean, just the sort of, you know, the wider scope of yeah. telling the tale. Like we're, we're getting back and we're talking about whole long swaths of time. I don't know. But right. just another point about how, you know, we ended the last one with finally he gets to talk to his son and it's, yeah. you know, we get the tiny, tiny little opening of the door just a little bit more and a little mm-hmm. bit more. And now months are passing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're just good. This is all becomes very action oriented at this point. And uh, let's see, Ori Korsky uh, pointed out that we have a ship and we're, we have a link to Theseus. And so this is uh, technically the famous uh, ship of Theseus, which is a uh, experiment, a thought experiment that asks how many components of an object, you know, ships, planks, the sails, the rudders can be replaced before the ship ceases to, you know, be the same ship. And I, which reminds me of a comedian's joke. He was a juggler and he was juggling an ax. He says, this ax belonged to George Washington. I've had to replace the handle and the head. <laughs> so. Yeah. It was also recently made famous by the WandaVision. Yeah. Right. So yeah, where that's vision and vision talked about. Yeah their identities there. And they actually seem to come to some kind of agreement because of right. it. I don't, I didn't buy that part. For you. That's, <laughs> That's me. That's me. I like the rest of it quite a bit. But. Yeah. No, it was pretty good. It was all right. Um, oh, so the ship's name is land of virgins. And uh, let's, we can move back into, um, you know, cosmic mythology level at this point, because the constellation Virgo, we're going to be moving away from the, the northern polar stars at this point, the, the citadel of the magicians, and we're going to be moving down along the elliptic. That's This is the direction that we're sailing. Remember, the elliptic is the path that the sun takes across the sky. And the first stop here is the constellation Virgo. Of course, to uh, to us, Virgo is is a you know a virgin, but to the ancient Egyptians, Virgo was the bow of a ship, and this constellation is also associated with the corn maidens in that the name of its brightest star, Spica, means ear of corn. So, also regarding the uh, the land of virgins, we have the Battle of Hampton Road between the Monitor Minotaur and the Virginia. Yeah, or you probably, or at least I remember always hearing the monitor and the Merrimack. And yeah, the, well, yeah. technically, <laughs> technically, the Merrimack was rechristened. Right, exactly. When it so, was stolen. <laughs> yeah, so it was. They, they were two ironclads, the first uh, battle of ironclad ships, right? Yep. This is a parallel that many readers have pointed out in the past, and I think it's solid. I, I think it's solid even more than I've been considering it this time around. Land of Virgins, Virginia, Monitor, Minotaur. However, I've already poo-pooed this connection in the last episode, but I'm second-guessing all that because I think, like I said, there are some points of parody between the Battle of Hampton Roads and the Land of Virgins battle with the Ogre, and we can get into that uh, when we get there. Still, the Confederate ship Virginia did not defeat the monitor. It was, in fact, 
a strategic victory for the Union because, you know, the, the Union fleet was saved and Virginia and the Confederate fleet was bottled up in the James River at the Gosport Navy Yard. But I can see that Wolf did likely intend that that story found its way into this one, the story of the student and his son in some beat up fashion. Yeah. And I think in the way we've talked about before, probably where, you know, he's not taking the entire story and all the details and lining up, you know, piece by piece with, with something in his story. I think it's really in the end, just a fun play on yeah. monitor Minotaur <laughs> and then a way to make the monster. Yeah, cool. yeah exactly. Well, yeah. So, okay. So let's go ahead and, and, and go over them. Uh, when hostilities broke out between the Union and Confederate States, the U.S. Navy abandoned the Gosport Navy Yard on the James River at Norfolk, Virginia. One of the things that they did was to sink the USS Merrimack to prevent it being captured. And then they blockaded the point where the mouth of the James River opened into the Atlantic. Then the next year, the Confederates raised the Merrimack and put the thick steel plates on her, creating the you know first ironclad ship, and they named it the Virginia. When I studied this battle in public schools, like you said, Craig, in Ohio, it was almost always referred to as the Merrimack, not the Virginia. And I've always had yep. to half remember that it was called the Virginia. And I suppose that's a bit of pro-union hegemony on the part of the textbook writers in Ohio. I don't know. But maybe but you, you grew up in Texas and you had the same problem, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, I, I'll be honest. I don't know if I even remembered it was the Virginia until I was looking up something about this a couple of years no, ago, well. specifically for this. And it was like, oh, okay. But I'm, I also admit I'm not a big Civil War history buff. So, <laughs> well, the Union was blockading, you know, like I said, the Confederate coasts. And it was a bit of a Sputnik moment for the Union when they found out the Confederacy was making this major naval innovation, a steam powered ironclad ship. And the Union Navy was, you know, who cares about them and their little tin ship? But Congress passed a, some legislation requiring that the Navy build three ironclad ships. And it was a good idea because the Virginia immediately went into battle against the Union blockade and made hash of the, you know, of the entire fleet as they were helplessly firing against the Virginia's hull to little effect. However, it was still beat up a bit in, in uh, trouncing a whole fleet of Union ships. <laughs> and this was known as, again, the Battle of Hampton Roads. Now, the first ironclad ship that the Union had built was the Monitor, and it was rushed to the battle. It was designed to be very maneuverable, and it was very lightly armored, which gave it an advantage of speed over the Virginia. And it did not have the weaknesses of the Virginia in that its hull was well below the waterline, you know, just like the, the monitor. And it also had, and this was another parallel to this story, it had, it had this armored turret that could fire in any direction. And otherwise it presented very little above the waterline. And when the Confederates on the Virginia first saw it, they thought it was just a raft. However, the power of the naval cannons 
had not advanced along with the new innovation of ironclad protection. And it was a slugfest between these two ships for two hours without a winner. And so it was a draw. And still, here's a point of parallel to our story. There was a major point in the battle when the monitor had to retreat because the Virginia hit her dead on the pilot house, the little fortress above the water that was used to steer. And the captain was blinded by a gunpowder burst. And so to wrap up the, the monitor versus the Virginia story, the monitor retreated and the Virginia retreated up the river to the Navy yard. The Virginia was not, was not considered to be capable of travel on the ocean, even if it broke through the blockade. So a few months later, the Union forces were advancing on Norfolk. So they scuttled the Virginia. And today, very little of it has been found because it was heavily salvaged after the war. Now, the part of this that I did not know until you told me was the part about the captain being blinded mm -hmm. yeah. by the, the gunpowder smoke, which, how do they finally confuse it, right? right? Exactly. They, they blow smoke in his direction. So um, that makes a lot of sense. Like, And it, it totally, again, seems like Wolf taking details from something and just having fun retelling them in different contexts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, somebody um, somebody yeah. telling the story of the Minotaur and, oh, here's another one. See, they just changed it a little bit. Yeah. The monitor, they yep. mean Minotaur. So so I know people have, have tried to say things like, oh, okay, so is there something about, you know, the Civil War and the two sides and slavery and all this? And I, I don't see that. You know, I like I, I really do feel like it's just about the the details of this story that he decided to sort of mix up. In right. I mean, once you get to the larger thing about, OK, so is this also an allegory of the Civil War somehow and applying that to either the Tale of the Student of the Sun or to Book a New Sun? And that I I really have a hard time finding just because I don't know exactly how that would all play out. Yeah, I think um, that's showing an interest in things that it looks to me Wolf had no interest in in this case. Yeah. Not in this context. Yeah. yeah. But it does explain sort of more about how, I mean, what it's doing is the, the whole purpose of the Brown book is talking about how details of history and myth all get mixed up and the contexts are completely lost and mistaken and forgotten. Um, and so it's cool. You have two different stories, one mythic, one historical, and they get mixed up in some other totally wrong story yeah yeah and and yet ends up being you know something that then could be meaningful but the the ways that you would try and tie it back to figure out what the original truth was you, you couldn't you literally couldn't figure it right out yeah at this point so yeah so they're just cryptic <laughs> in the end and and it's again the kind of fun way to do cryptic stuff because you're like oh i recognize something of this right. but there's no way to really see exactly what it's being added up to imagine a writer who didn't have a central vision but who is able to use a whole bunch of sources it's like those ai paintings or something. I think very like much yeah no, this is clutter yeah. this is the clutter of antiquity where yeah. as the story goes along different elements get tacked on to it are merged with it seem are mistaken as believing that they are related when they aren't but they kind of are so yeah it's beautiful at last, when the golden leaves fell from the sycamores, even as the gold manufactured by magicians falls at last from the hands of men, and the gray salt geese streamed among the pale towers of the city with the lammer gear and the ossifrage screaming after them, 
the youth set sail. Yeah, we, so we've got the, the salt geese and the lamigir and the ossifrage yeah. once again. I do like the sort of repetition of the leaves, of, of talking about the leaves and when it is that sort of epic poetry moment of taking those little um, markers, just like Homer's, mm-hmm. you know, wine, dark sea and everything else. Was, that adds just a little bit of epic poem to this for me, just right, to make it, yeah. make it seem larger somehow. Yeah. And obviously we have moved six months from the last section, right? Yeah. Because now we're in, in autumn, whereas before we were in spring. Much befell them on the whale road to the Isle of the Ogre that has no place here. But at the end of those adventures, the lookouts saw before them a country of tawny hills dotted with green. And even as they shaded their eyes to see it, the green grew greater and greater still. Then the young man whom the student had fleshed from dreams knew that it was indeed the Isle of the Ogre and that the corn maidens were hastening to the shore for the sight of his sail. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, uh, I'm not going to get into the Isle of the Ogre. I'm going to address that a little bit later. The whale road. That's that's one thing I didn't have. they, They didn't mention that before, did they? The whale road. No, no, no. It's the, the whale road, which, which to me is the, uh, the ecliptic, the path of the sun. Mm-hmm. But in, I guess, a whale road would be um, where you would follow whales if you mm-hmm. were going whaling, right? Yeah. yeah. Also does sound oddly like railroad, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but no, so lots of the other thing here is that the, the growth of the green, um, how much colors are taking over. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Then were the great guns readied, and the flags of the city of the magicians, that are all of yellow and black, were hung in the rigging. Near they came, and nearer, until fearing to run aground, they put about and beat along the coast. The corn maidens followed them, and following, attracted more of their sisterhood, until they covered all the land like grain indeed. But the young man did not forget what he had been told, that the ogre lived among the corn maidens. Right. Um, so taking this for, for cosmic mythology, and I think that, that this just gets stronger and stronger as we go. So I can't move that in the background as I tried to <laughs> last time unsuccessfully. When you move along the ecliptic from Orion, you're going to leave the Milky Way behind. and then, But eventually you're going to move to the southern portions. You're going to run into it again. And when you get to Virgo, you're pretty much in sight of the, of the Milky Way. And then you can move up along the Milky Way as they move along the coast. And you're coming going to come to the opening of the Great Rift, which I've mentioned before. And it shows up, I think, multiple times uh, within in Shadow of the Torturer and in Claw the Conciliator. And I actually think that this part is all about travel. And it's also about moving from a home to a dangerous place, which to me really, if we're really going to think about Hamlet's Mill is the the core of it being a transition between ages or something mm-hmm. like that. To have a section like this that really does kind of very faithfully, seemingly at least to me, follow that or that symbolism, then it works really well. Because I mean, apart from me sitting here trying to figure out something about the colors, there's really not a whole lot else that I can think this part is doing. But it really does emphasize. Yeah, like you said, moving among among the heavens and moving right. among from from spot to spot, from the domain of one constellation or set of constellations to another, and it just 
it seems all about like moving of eras or moving of ages. Right, exactly. And when you reach the Milky Way, at this point, you're looking almost directly into the galactic center of the Milky Way. And uh, so the, uh, the story is going to leave the elliptic for a while and move along the, the Milky Way into the opening of the Great Rift. And in fact, speaking of that, after a half day's sailing, they rounded a point and saw that the coast fell away as a deep channel that did not end, but wound its way among the low hills of the country until it was lost to sight. At the entrance to this channel stood a collot of white marble surrounded by gardens, and here the young man ordered his companions to cast anchor and went ashore. All right, a collot. A collot. We actually have encountered this uh, word in the Book of the Long Sun, because that is what silk wears. It's a, a, a collot, which is a priest's skull cap. But a collot is something else in in uh, is something else in architecture. A collot is a dome. A collot is a segmented dome, and it's named that because it looks, as far as for architecture goes, like a uh, priest's skull cap. Um, but it, there are lots of different types of domes, of collots domes. But if you were to uh, just Google collot dome uh, astronomy, you're going to get a lot of diagrams for observatory domes. Now, where the location of this is, it's, we're told it's at the beginning of the channel of the Great Rift, and there aren't a lot, whole lot of uh, good candidates for this. However, there is at the opening of the Great Rift a constellation called Scutum, very faint. And Scutum means shield, but to the ancient uh, Chinese, it was the heavenly helm. So, I mean, that's my best candidate for, for a collat, which is a, a priest's skull cap. Cool. He had no more than set foot on the soil of the isle than there came to meet him a woman of great beauty, swart of skin, black of hair, and luminous of eye. He bowed before her, saying, Princess or queen, I see that you are not of the corn maidens. Their robes are green, yours is sable. Yet were you to wear a dress of green, I should know you still, for your eyes sorrow not, and the light that is in them is not of earth. <laughs> you speak truly, the princess said, for I am Noctua, the daughter of the night, and the daughter too of him who you have come to slay. Uh. Um, so, yeah, I like the, the swart of skin. Swart is not a word that you hear very often. <laughs> so, yeah, the swarthy. Well, um, well dark, you could be swarthy. Like, yeah. Do, did... um. Did Tolkien use that word for the uh, Easterlings or the men from the South? I feel like he did. Yeah, I believe that's men. probably. I mean, it, yeah. it, it certainly seems like a good Hobbit word. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure it did. Yeah. I mean, well, as it turns out, Noctua means owl. And there is a constellation, Noctua. It's no longer uh, recognized as a constellation, but it was uh, first described in 1822. It was located uh, between Libra and Hydra, which is to the south of the opening of the Great Rift and therefore Scutum as well. So she is sitting underneath the Calat, which again is a, uh, an observational dome. So what about the sable dress? 
Well, okay. <laughs> I can answer that, but I we need to get a little bit of information about her family first. Okay. All right. Then we cannot be friends, Noctua, said the young man. But let us not be enemies. For though he did not know why, being of the stuff of dreams, he was drawn to her. And she, whose eyes held starlight, to him. I feel like we're getting slightly mm. into a Sandman type area. Um, <laughs> Romance, yeah. yeah. At this, the princess spread her hands and declared, Know that my father took my mother by force, and here holds me against my wishes, where I would soon go mad, were it not that she comes to me at each day's end. If you do not see sorrow in my eyes, it's only because it lies upon my heart. That I may be free, I shall willingly counsel you how you may engage my father and triumph. There you go. Okay, so um, as the daughter of night, that's Knox or Nix. Uh, remember, there was an image of night in the first chapter of the little way station on the road between the necropolis and the guile. Here, uh, Wolf has kind of given us a hint about this. He, in the Castle of the Otter, in his section where he's talking about names, Wolf does do an ex explanation. He says the original, where he's talking about Erebus, the Megatherian, Wolf explains that Erebus was the consort of Night. And so he's, he uh, clarifies the original Erebus was the stepfather, if you like, of our princess Noctua. This is about as good evidence as I need to say that our ogre friend here is, in fact, Erebus. And we also find out from Hesiod that the daughter of Night is Black Kerr, who is the personification of violent death. Okay, so let's talk about real world now. We've got Noctua, who as an owl is um, associated with Lilith. Uh, Lilith is another term for owl. So uh, Noctua's name, as I said, Greek for owl, and the Old Testament Hebrew word for screech owl is Lilith. And in the Greek myths, Robert Graves identifies Lilith as Kerr. And Jorge Luis Borges reported that in popular imagination, Lilith often assumes the form of a tall, silent woman with long black hair. So we've got all the pieces coming. It's all coming together. It's all and coming did you say Kerr? C-U-R? K-E-R. Oh, K-E-R. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, um, Kerr is one of those goddesses that uh, eventually gets broken up in variously into three or more persons, uh, known plurally as the Caries. And as such, you know, she's associated with other triadic okay. goddesses of retribution, fate, and birth. Gotcha. But she's the daughter of night. She's the personification of violent death. This, I'm going to say, is Thecla or Thea. It depends. If I had only read the Book of the New Sun, then I would probably say that this is Thecla and that our hero is self-evidently Severian. However, because of the intro about the student and the son, uh, crafting a student from dream stuff, I would, and knowing from Earth of the New Sun that there's no record of Severian ever partaking in this battle, then I would say, well, this is this must be, you know, the first Severian, therefore this is Thea. Well, Thecla, Thecla makes sense too, because if she's Erebus's daughter, I mean, Thecla is a follower. Yeah, that's right. Well, and so is Thea. So is Thea, yeah. But I mean, the, but, to, but I do think it is interesting to say that 
there was a rape between the mother and the father, that does sort of show that, or, or suggests at least to me that, yeah, Erebus is sort of forcefully coming in here to, to take people over that it's, it's not like she's anyone is his natural daughter. Well, I have a, I have another theory about this. If we assume that this is Thecla and she's talking about how they're, they're all both made from the same stuff. This could, mm-hmm. I, I, obviously I am currently uh, theorizing that Thecla is in a sense, Severian's mother. I won't, I won't elaborate. That would also make them the same, but also Thecla is inside of Severian. Yeah. And if I was going to draw a real world explanation from this uh, mythologized story, then I would say that when she imparts a secret to Severian, it is much the same way that Thecla imparted the secret for how to escape from the antechamber to Severian, in that he gets this information from her memories. Hmm. Okay. I'm just over here free associating now, thinking about if Severian is the student, then it's like who made him and who made him would be. Wolf. I, I, yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's like, well, so but what's kind of, but thinking too about like if the larger story, like, um, well, if, if Severian is the son and the first Severian is, is the student, then, okay, this has to be Severian in some future version of Severian. And he just didn't record this story in earth of the new Sun. If this is the first Severian, then we have a problem because it means that there must have been a previous Severian to him. If I was if I was going to rectify all this, I would just say that this is probably a story of the first Severian because our Severian doesn't record it. And it seems to me that the beginning with the, the student and his son is sort of a confabulation. It's we, we get the relationship between Severian and the first Severian without it being uh, literally true. No, I, I definitely see that coming from the first Severian thing. I was just thinking, like, going back to my, something I haven't talked about in a long time, but that I want to come back to eventually here, but is that this is a story where myths create reality. Mm. Because what I like then is that you have this learned guy, this magician, who eventually creates a hero. Mm-hmm who can go and defeat the bad thing and, and bring about some kind of salvation or, or something like that. And to think of like, it actually be not an internal allegory, but maybe an allegory of Wolf and Severian. But I just like the idea of Wolf talking about how he creates a son and how he creates characters in this sort of weird mix of procrastination and delay, but then also, you know, intensely hard work. And, and then suddenly he just appears and has agency of his own right? and uh, becomes more real in some way. So becomes so real to him that when he thinks he's dead and you know, when you, when you lose your dreams, <laughs> there's no point <laughs> left. But um, anyway, that, that's a totally different direction than how we're, we're largely taking it, but it just popped into my head. All the young men of the city of the magicians grew quiet and gathered to listen to her first You must understand that the waterways of this isle turn and turn again in such a way that they can never be charted. You can by no means use sail as you wander them, but must kindle your furnaces ere you go farther. I have no fear of that, said the young man, fleshed from dreams. Half a forest was laid waste to fill our bins, and those great wheels you see shall walk these waters with the tread of giants. 
a big steamboat. Yeah. At that, the princess trembled and said, Oh, speak not of giants, for you know not what you say. Many ships have come as you have, until the oozy bottoms of all these measureless channels are white with skulls. For it is the custom of my father to allow them to wander among the islets and straits until their fuel is spent, however much it may be, and then, coming upon them by night when he can see them by the glow of their dying fires, and they not see him, slay them. Yeah, um, we have moved directly into labyrinth territory, right? Yep. That we are in a real labyrinth. And it's obvious at this point why, in my opinion, some future academic looked at this story and said, oh, this is the story of Theseus. I do like, this is the first mention we have of the, the wheels, right? And of the steam, the steamboat aspect of it. They didn't mm-hmm. mention that before, did they? I don't think they did. Yeah. And also just as far as imagery goes, this is the first time that we get a different picture of the ship having these great wheels and that it's got engines. I should say, I don't think that we should take this story to the, the, the details of this particular story to be literal. I have, I've looked at it every which way and I can't come up with a literal explanation. I don't think that this is a, necessarily a sea battle, although assuming it's Erebus, it might have been, but I don't know how they could have beaten them with ships, but then I don't know what kind of ships they were using. Yeah, I don't think it is. I mean, it seems definitely like it's something else. I mean, yeah. And also if assuming as I kind of do that Jonas is involved in this uh, story, this would, that would suppose that he was part of some sort of space battle. If that's true. Yeah. And I'm trying to think because we know it would be cool if this is actually like a weird way to tell a story about a space battle with Erebus. Mm hmm. But, but we we know so little about anything about the Megatherians right. off of Earth that it just seems so far out. No, I I have to admit I think in the end it's more at least as far as how it relates to the bigger story. I feel more like it's a, a story about how Severian can beat Erebus in the end. No, oh, okay, um, yeah. and at least that's so. It's more sort of a <laughs> you have a little instructional, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But but probably yeah. less about tactics and more about you know beating what, giant space monsters for dumb. Right, but it, we'll we'll talk about exactly how. Like, what does what does the sun do that actually wins the battle in the end? And there's mm-hmm. you know it's sort of like what 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 virtues? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, does he have to have that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Okay. All right, so we move on. Then the heart of the young man fleshed from dreams was troubled. And he said, we will seek him as we are sworn, but is there no way in which we may escape the fate of those others? At this, the princess took pity on him, for all who have the stuff of dreams about them seem fair in some degree, at least to the daughters of night, and he fairest of all. Thus she said, to find my father before your last stick is burned, you need only search out the darkest water. For wherever he passes, his great body raises a foul mud, and by observing it, you may discover him. But each day you must begin the search at dawn, and at noon desist. For otherwise you may come upon him by twilight, and it will go evilly with you. For this counsel I would have given my life, said the young man, and all his companions who had come ashore with him raised a cheer. For now we will surely overcome the ogre. <laughs> Easy peasy. Right. But um, 
so thinking about sun imagery, I mean, stopping at the the point where where it's noon, where mm-hmm. the sun is highest in the sky, and then um, following sort of the darkest paths. I mean, we've got shadows there. That Seek out the darkest waters. Yeah, but yeah, but finding him at twilight is when he's most dangerous, which is kind of cool, and that's precisely how things are here too. That Erebus is more powerful now, of course, because there's right be more powerful while there's the sun is dim yeah right exactly at this the solemn face of the princess became more sober yet and she said no not surely for he is a dread antagonist in any sea fight but i know a stratagem that may aid you you've said that you came well supplied have you tar to pay your ship should she leak Many barrels, said the young man. Then when you fight, see that the wind blows from yourself to him. And when the fight is hottest, which will not be long after you've joined, have your men cast tar into your furnaces. I can't promise that it will give you the victory, but it will aid you greatly. (laughs) At this, all the young men thanked her most extravagantly, and the corn maidens who had stood shyly by while the young man fleshed from dreams and the daughter of night spoke, raised such a cheer as maidens raise a cheer not strong, but filled with joy. Then the young man made ready to depart, kindling the fires in the great furnaces amidships until the white specter was born that drives good ships ahead no matter what wind may blow. And the princess watched them from the strand and gave them her blessing. Uh, I just love that image of the scene, the white, the steam, the white specter was born that drives good ships ahead. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is beautiful poetry, right? I, th- I think I think it's a beautiful epic poem. He could, if he had laid it out in verse, it would have been, you know, it's the wrong age for it. It's the in the eighties, but mm-hmm. you know, it's still it's it's gorgeous. Oh yeah, yeah. Last paragraph of the section. But just as the great wheels began to turn, so slowly at first that they appeared scarcely to move, she called the young man fleshed from dreams to the railing, saying, "It may be that you shall find my father. Should you find him, it may be that you shall defeat him." laying low even such prowess as his. Yet even so, you may be sorely vexed to find your way to the sea once more, for the channels of this isle are most wondrously wrought. Yet there is a way. From my father's right hand you must flay the tip of the first finger. There you'll see a thousand tangled lines. Be not discouraged, but study it closely, for it's the map he followed in webbing the waterways that he himself might always have it by him. (laughs) Okay, well... I will say that from a cosmic standpoint, the great wheels that are turning for a ship, these these are nothing but, well, I say nothing but, these are the circle of the ecliptic, the path that the sun takes across the sky, and the circle of the Milky Way. Hmm. Okay, cool. As for the ogre's fingertip, first place, look at your fingertip. It's a big whirling sky. This is the whirling of the heavens, mm-hmm. and the lines that are that are cast are not are just the constellations. And it's also a different way to get out of the labyrinth than Theseus. Yes, has, yeah, right? it's not just the Theseus story. Yeah, and it's a totally different way of doing things because in in the actual Theseus story, the whole point is he takes a piece of string and he's just going to follow that the mm-hmm. same way in that he did. But with well, she does one, give him. A, she, I mean, she gives him a. a a, a secret, a plan in order to mm-hmm. defeat the labyrinth. But yep. still, you know, it's, I can see why someone would say, oh, well, this is 
kind of retelling of the Theseus story. But it, then again, when you look at it more closely, you can say, no, it's not. You're imagining the, the that these are the same stories. There's, there is a labyrinth, right? There's yeah. a kind of a, a map. There is a monster. Um, after that, really, the story breaks down entirely. Pieces. The sails. We do get the sails at the mm-hmm. end. And the well, yeah, but so, I contend that was but, added after the fact. Uh, I see. I guess. Yeah. So, but no, but as far as um, the difference between, to me at least, between the, the string and the map is that the map makes everything seem much more deliberate. Mm-hmm. That, that it it was actually something that he built these waterways intentionally to do it this, and then he hides the knowledge himself, has it in a certain way, and it's knowledge that you can gain. Yeah. Whereas the actual Theseus story, it's kind of brute and random that, that it's just, you know, wherever the string goes, that's where you'll follow. Um, but it's less intentional. Whereas this gives the labyrinth a bit more of a, I don't know, to me, at least slightly sinister kind yeah. of character. Well, just um, like the labyrinth of, uh, of the Minotaur, even its maker can't find his way out of it without mm-hmm. some kind of a map. Mm-hmm. And here too, that's, that's the other interesting thing. The Minotaur or the ogre, the ogre is the maker of the labyrinth, um, which it, it's in the legend. It's Daedalus. It's another mm-hmm. master, but here it's actually the bad guy <laughs> who created the thing too. So and if that's Erebus, then Erebus is a lot trickier than, uh, <laughs> than it seems like we got in, in the Theseus story. Yeah. And I, Oh, by the way, I should say, I mentioned that the uh, Southern circumpolar region of the heavens sits over Antarctica where there is a rather famous mountain, Mount Erebus. Mm-hmm. Is that a mountain of madness? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, wait, but did they, was that at the uh, Erebus, the, the Lovecraft story? Uh, it's in Antarctica. I don't think oh. it's at Erebus. I don't oh. recall. But well, I, he but missed an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's yeah, definitely I, down there. Yeah. I, I should say, by the way, I've always, for a long time, because of his name, assumed that Erebus was dead already. And, uh, you know, the wolf's connection between the ogre and Erebus confirmed that for me, but because of it, but also because of his name, his name, uh, Erebus refers to the personification of the darkness of the underworld. But I'm going to give you a little hint. I no longer believe that. And I'm going to say that for my, uh, curiositas earthus at the end of this. Interesting. I was going to say, I, I was not shocked, but I'm like, oh, if Erebus is dead, then why is he, why are we so worried about it? <laughs> well, he is a walker I mean, in time, so. Yes, that's true. That's true. But we do have, we still got a buyer running around. So, yeah. okay. So, so much of that section is all about talking about the strategies and, and doing it. But one other thing we got to mention too, is that the strategy that she tells him is, hey, make, uh, make some smoke that's going to mm-hmm. confuse him. And then you can go at him that way, which of course does then get contrasted with the white smoke, the white specter that can actually push the ship forward. So right. you got these two kind of contrasting things, but the strategy that she gives him is all about uh, clarity of perception, right? It's all about, here's how you can follow the right path. You look for certain kinds of waterways. And so that will show you what you're doing. You need to take away his vision. That's going to help you. And then the last thing to do to get out is you steal the map, which again is all about how you, you know, it's, it's another visual representation. So all of the ways that she's telling him to destroy Erebus here all have to do with vision and light. And that seems 
not insignificant when you're in a book called The New Sun. Mm -hmm. That's how it's going to be. So everything here, how to beat the giant ogre has to do with using light for your advantage and putting other people in darkness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he represents darkness, right? He Mm -hmm. he is in the darkest part of the water. And that's another reason why I love the white specter so much is that steam is not smoke. Like steam is a kind of lack of vision but the mm-hmm. way it's given here is it's something that's totally productive and pushes you forward and it seems like a cool i don't know almost contradictory kind of image yeah, yeah, yeah i have yeah. no idea what the steam might be in the real world but i just i just love how that works yeah yeah if anything if anything i mean yeah. this could have uh you know this this history could have been retrofitted to a cosmic myth at a time when and by people who you know live with steam power as opposed to other forms yeah and as, it as, seems like it must yeah and as we said last time i mean the one thing i don't think either of us feel really compelled to do is to yeah tie a one-to-one connection no no every I, I, detail I in here it's right. like i so much of this just is done to make it weird and strange right right it's i think that that is impossible it, we're, we're, what we're looking here is the clutter of antiquity right right but i do think that all that stuff about vision about the strategies of how how to beat the ogre and then how to confuse them that it does have to do with light and vision that to me seems that's, significant that's credible yeah yeah. But, yeah all right you ready to go to the next section yep part four the battle with the ogre inland they turned their bow and even as the princess had foretold the channel they followed soon divided and divided again until there were a thousand forking channels and ten thousand islets Hello, Borges. Yeah. Garden of Forking Paths. Exactly. I, I wonder if that suggests that this is a battle through time itself. If you wanted to push that one, that's exactly what the Borges story of would be. Of all the, all the, of a battle through alternate timelines and possible timelines. Yeah. I like that. I like time as a labyrinth. Yeah. Time not just as like a few alternatives or whatnot, but actual labyrinths. That's right, really yeah. cool. That's not an image you usually see, even though time travel stories do get all twisted up a lot of the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're mad. And sometimes you do have to work to find your way out. Yeah. But I wonder if you could really take that metaphor even farther than it's ever gone before. I like that, though. That's pretty cool. Okay. I'd never really thought of that. Awesome. Cool. When the shadow of the mainmast was no large... I can't talk. When the shadow of the mainmast was no larger than a hat, the young man (laughs) fleshed from dreams gave orders that the anchors be cast and the fires banked. And there, for a long afternoon, they waited, oiling the guns and readying the powder and preparing all that might be needful in the hardest-fought battle. They're waiting for twilight. Yep. At length, night came. It's capitalized. Yes. Night. Yep. <laughs> it's, yep. so it's, it's not just night. Name. It's she yep. has come. It's it's kind of a little scene from, uh, from, from Soldier of the Mist. Yep. And the rest of it bears that up and they saw her striding from islet to islet with her bats about her shoulders and her <laughs> dire wolves dogging her steps now that's just a cool sentence because it could totally just be yeah darkness coming from far away and you know yeah the, the bats in the sky her shoulders and the wolves on the ground um but it's also literal like yeah that's why uh, okay. it's just such a cool cool image i know there's a lot of artists out there who listen to this podcast and often draw based on it i'd like to see a representation of night striding from aisle to aisle with her bats around her and her dire wolves at her feet yeah just such a cool sentence no more than an easy carronade shot from their anchorage she seemed 
Yet they all observed that she passed not before Hesperus or even Sirius, but they before her. For a moment only, she turned her face toward them, and none could be certain what her look conveyed. But all of them wondered if indeed the ogre had taken her without her will, as her daughter had said, and if so, if she had not lost the resentment she might be imagined to have felt. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about carronades. Uh, That's a a kind of short cannon um, designed to throw large particles at a relatively slow velocity. It's used for breaking or smashing. So, So, you know, bringing down... The, uh, the sails of a ship or doing damage to the sides of a ship. Also, we have this picture of night. She's walking among the stars, but she's not passing in front of Hesperus or, or Sirius. They are walking in front of her because that's the way the night is. Yeah. It's also so cool, an image of night being something that comes closer but is still far away at the same mm-hmm. time odd like a like a shadow so um and then also we do get the sort of worry here that oh the night seems dark as well and frightening and a little mysterious and so there's that whole worry about like oh did did they lose the resentment and are we being tricked somehow (laughs) and it's sort of the you know the nature of that that weird nightly thing here but yeah so we got you know, night is something that seems possibly terrifying. I mean, bats and dire wolves follow her mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she, she seems close and yet yeah. she's actually farther out than the farther stars. Away. Yeah. So, so it's still, they're, they're not certain. They're still not certain. So with the first light, the trumpet sounded from the quarter deck and the banked fires were fed new fuel. But as the dawn breeze stood fair for the channel, they held, The young men ordered all plain sail, set before the great wheels were ready to take their first step. And when the white specter wakened, the ship pressed forward at double speed. For many leagues, that channel ran not straight, but near enough that there was no need to furl the sails or even put about. A hundred others crossed it, and at each they studied the water, but each was translucent as crystal. To tell the strange sights they beheld on the isles they passed would require a dozen tales as long as this. Women, stem-grown like flowers, overhung the ships, and in kissing them sought to smear their faces with the powder from their cheeks. Men to whom wine had brought death long before lay by springs of wine and drank still, too stupefied to know their lives were past. Beasts that would be omens to future times, with twisted limbs and fur of colors never seen, waited the nearer approach of battles, earthquakes, and the murders of kings." So I think that this section demonstrates that this story was once an epic uh, with, with lots of stories uh, built into them. And those be. have been lost or, or lighted over. It could also refer to uh, you know, lost constellations. Uh, that's entirely speculative. I'm also thinking if it is a traveling through time, then, then it, it could also be alternative. Right, exactly. Well, it's. I think that this does. I think that this is the strongest suggestion that this is a battle that's taking place, you know, between stars. Mm, I like that, but I love those. Those are just such cool images that that wolf just must have been having fun there. Yeah, yeah, that is a beautiful image. Yeah, and the the women who are stem grown. um, It just seems like a weird kind of twist of Odysseus and the Sirens. Yeah, just because they're the things that are tied to the ground and and 
yeah, just just so cool, just odd. Okay. At last, the youth who stood first mate to the young man, fleshed from dreams, approached him where he waited near the steersman, saying, Far we have traveled on this channel already, and the sun, that had not shown his face when we bent our sails, approaches his zenith. Following it, we have crossed a thousand others, and none has shown a trace of the ogre. May it not be that it is an unlikely course we take? Would not it be wiser to turn aside soon and try another? Then the young man answered, Even now we pass a channel to starboard. Look down, and tell me if its waters are more soiled than our own. The youth did as he was bid, and said, Nay, clearer. Soon now another opens to port. To what depth can you see? The youth waited until the ship stood opposite the channel of which the young man spoke. Then he answered, To the utmost. I see the wreck of a ship of long time past, many a fathom down. And can you see so far in this channel we sail now? Then the youth looked at the waters they cleaved, and they were become as ink, and the very splatters that flew from the laboring wheels might have been rooks and ravens. At once understanding came to him, and he shouted to all the others to stand by the guns, for he could not tell them to make ready, who had made ready so long before. Should we recognize this youth? Um... I mean, it, I, the problem with, like, I was thinking, where where is Jonas show up in here? Mm-hmm. Um, the difficulty with this guy being Jonas is that Jonas never really, to me at least, seems to doubt exactly like this. He doubts himself. Well, maybe it's not Jonas. Maybe maybe it's it could be Miles or mm-hmm. it could be uh, Robo Jonas, in which case, probably, I don't know, maybe. In which case, it's really not the same person. Yeah, but if it's but if it's Miles, then you know all the time when you're you're talking to to Jonas, you know when uh, when Bio Jonas starts to revive, there are a lot of doubts. Yeah, and if it, you know if it's a youth, then it would be a, a younger version of Bio Jonas. Yeah, and it's an odd passage too because. In some ways, it doesn't make sense. Like, why is this kid questioning him? He's like, dude, didn't you hear the lady who said what we're supposed <laughs> to do? And it, it made sense. And plus, what are we going to do? Just take a random, random thing? Well, um, you may have. But, maybe she didn't know as much as she thought she did. Yeah. Right, right. But it's also cool because then it sets up. Oh, and look now and the water's right below us. And it's like super dark. And so like, get ready because we're getting closer right. and closer. So it is cool for that. But yeah, otherwise, I don't really know what to do with the kid. Yeah. So a head lay an islet higher than most crowned with tall and somber trees, and here the channel bent gently, so that the wind that had been dead astern was at the quarter. The steersman shifted his grip on the wheel, and the watch paid out certain sheets and tightened others, and the ship's prow came around the quick curve of the cliff, and there before them lay a long hull of narrow beam, with a single castle of iron amidships, and a single gun larger than any they carried, thrusting from its one embrasure. We finally see the ogre, or at least the Naviskaput. Yeah, the only thing that kind of strikes me as different here is how quickly the transition is from describing the landscape and to the the critter, um, which if Erebus is both a mountain and a monster, that seems kind of cool that, you know, of all, that you start with the quick curve of the cliff and then there lay the long hull of the narrow beam. So that's a reach. I don't think that's intentional, but yeah. it's just kind of cool. So they start shooting. And at this point, the actual battle begins. So then the young man, fleshed from dreams, opened his lips to shout to the bow chaser crews that they should fire. 
Before the words could be spoken, the great gun of their enemy roared, and its sound was not as thunder or as any other sound familiar to the ears of men, but rather it seemed that they had stood in a tall tower of stone, and it had fallen all around them in a moment. Ah, wow. There is a, uh, there is a parallel to this description, a tall tower of stone uh, back at the Manape's cave that he felt like a, if a tower mm, yeah. had, had, could walk, yeah. it would, that would be the sound of its steps. But in, uh, from, a, from a cosmic mythic point, uh, this, this cracking, this sound, this banging, this is the movement of the heavens. It's the, the, the collapsing of the stars. Just as, just as with Starry Iagoras, when you cut his throat, the, the sky shifts. It doesn't shift immediately. Mm-hmm. It shifts slowly over time. But this is the uh, procession of the equinox here, the, the collapsing of a tower of stone. And you see this uh, imagery used by Wolf over and over at Earth of the New Sun. Uh, when they strike him with the laser, it's what happens to the witch's tower oh, as right. well. That's right. And the ball of that shot struck the breech of the first gun of their starboard battery, and striking it broke it to pieces and shattered itself as well, so that the fragments of the breaking of both scattered through the ship like dark leaves before a great wind, and many died thereby. Ow. Leaves and things passing, too, is big in this. That's that's how we always knew the seasons would pass, by the, the leaves in the town, and so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then the steersman, waiting no order, swung the ship about until her port battery bore, and the guns fired each by the will of the man that pointed it, as wolves howl at the moon. And their shots flew about the single castle of the enemy to either side, and some struck it so that it told knells for those who had perished a moment before, and some struck the water before the hull that bore it, and some struck the deck, which was of iron also, and at that contact fled shrieking into the sky. Then the single gun of their enemy spoke again. And so it continued, in moments that seemed whole years of time. At last the young man bethought him of the advice of the princess, the daughter of night. But though the wind blew strong, it was hardly more than a stern of his ship. And if he were to shift until it blew from him to his enemy, as the princess had counseled, for many moments no gun would bear but the bow chasers. And then when a battery might be brought to bear, it would be the starboard, of which one gun was destroyed and so many men dead. So a lot of all of a sudden now we're getting here into good old ship battle stuff that we know Wolf likes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The bow, yep. the bow chasers. You know, the, the the he would only he wouldn't be able to give them a broadside of his cannons. He'd have to use only the the guns at the very front. But it came to him in that moment that they fought as a hundred others had fought, and that these hundred others were all dead. Their ships sunk and their bones scattered among the myriad channels that whirled and tangled the face of the Isle of the Ogre. Then he gave his order to the steersman, but none answered, for he was dead, and the wheel he had held held him. So seeing the young man fleshed from dreams, took the spokes in his own hands, and presented to their enemy the ship's narrow bow. Then it was seen how the three sisters favored the bold, for the next shot from their enemy that might have raked her from stem to stern went to port by the length of an oar, and the next to starboard by the width of a boat. Okay, so the uh, three sisters who favor the bold... Uh, that's of course the Moira, right? That's the that's fate, and the um, the steersman who uh, is slain, who holding on to the wheel. Uh, well, that is another Orion image. The uh, 
the turner of the wheel of oh, time. I didn't know that one. Yeah. So then time would be stopped for a moment then. Well, yeah, he, the, the, this is why the, the hero had to go and <laughs> step the in. The old taking control yeah. of fate at that point. Yeah. But it is a scene. It is another Janus scene, right? It's uh, the old year and, yeah. The, oh, and yeah. the new yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Right. Now their enemy who had stood fast before, neither seeking to fly nor to close, swung about. Seeing that he would escape them if he could, the crew raised a great shout as though already they had won the victory. But marvelous to see the single castle, which all had until then believed fixed, swung about the other way, so that its great gun that was greater than any of their own still bore. A moment later and its ball had struck them amidships, dashing a gun of the starboard battery from its truck as a drunken man might fling an infant from its cradle, and sending it skittering across the deck and smashing everything in its path. It's a pretty dark, Mm -hmm. dark simile. Then the guns of the battery, those that remained, spoke all in a chorus of fire and iron. And because the distance was now less than half of what it had been, or perhaps only because their enemy, having shown fear, had weakened the fabric of his being, their shot, yeah, I know that's pretty cool. Their shot no longer struck his castle with an empty clanging, but with a cracking as though the bell that will toll the end of the world were breaking and ragged <laughs> flaws spring to life on the oiled blackness of the iron. Yeah. I, uh, I see bells tolling in, in this particular story, but also he, he does it in other stories as well. In long sun, he does it in peace. Oh, we've talked about all the bells. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, the, these uh, reflect the, uh, the end of the world, the, the time when the old gods ascend beneath the sea and or into the underground underworld and the and new gods have to be selected. So it's a brand new world. It just, it's a flood. Yeah. But that's so cool that we get that here again, because mm-hmm. we've talked about all the times, especially in shadow when the bell rings with Holton or the sound of the bell that, that right. he hears. So Then the young man shouted into the Gosport to those who had remained faithfully in the engine room, feeding the furnaces with tree rack, telling them to cast tar into the flames as the princess had counseled them. At first he feared that all there were dead, then that the order was not understood in the den of battle, but a shadow fell upon the sun-brightened water that stretched between their enemy and himself, and he looked upward. So a a Gosport, by the way, is like... you. May have seen them in uh, you know, some sea movies where it's like a little tube where you, you talk to the people down below from above, right? Yep. But just cool here again that the strategy they're going to use is to use things that they're going to use the tar for a purpose it's not meant for. And then what they're also going to do is mess up their beautiful white <laughs> steam that's right. been driving them forward. So, I mean, there's it's a big stretch, but there is something about means justify the or end justifies the means or mm, okay. something about using tools for, you know, the tools wow. of the enemy for, for at least. War is a dirty business. Exactly. In ancient times, so it is said, a tattered child, the daughter of a fisherman, found on the sand a stoppered flask, and by breaking the seal and drawing forth the cork became queen from ice to ice. This would be like a, a genie story, right? Yep. And also we're getting this right in the middle of the battle too, this this little story. Just so, it seemed, an elemental being, strong with the strength of the forging of creation, debouched from the tall smokestacks of their ship, tumbling over himself in dark joy and growing with a rush as the wind comes. 
Oh, which I mean, <laughs> this sort of this is a cool image to have right after that tolling of the bell, right? A right, new, exactly. A yeah, new change. Yeah, um, and also it's it's changing context. So the steam that was white before is now black, but it's not going to be a bad thing for them. But it's exactly. it's like the contexts are changing, just like the 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 age is changing. Yeah, the way things mean things is changing too. Right. So it's such a cool image for that. So um, and the wind came indeed. And it seized him with its uncounted hands and bore him as a solid mass down upon their enemy. Even when nothing more could be seen, neither the long dark hull with its deck of iron, nor the single guns whose mouth had spoken words to doom them, they wasted no moment, but fell to their guns and fired into the blackness. And from time to time they heard the gun of their enemy firing also. But no flash did they see, and where those shots struck they could not say. It may be they have struck nothing yet, and still circle round the world seeking their target. <laughs> yeah. Um, Comets. <laughs> well, yeah. Or, I mean, it could be the uh, the constellation Sagitta, which is close by uh, to where all this action is taking place. It's the arrow, which uh, you know still does circle the world each day in search of a target. That's pretty cool. They fired until the barrels shone like ingots, newly come from the crucible. Then the smoke that had poured forth so long diminished, and those below shouted by the Gosport that all the tar was consumed. And the young man fleshed from dreams ordered that firing cease, and the men who had worked the guns fell upon the deck like so many corpses, too exhausted even to beg water. The black cloud melted, not as fog melts in the sun, but as an army strong to evil dissolves before repeated charges, giving here stubbornly standing there, still mustering a wisp of skirmishers when it seems all has given way. In vain, then, they searched the new polished waves for their enemy. Nothing could they see, not his hull, nor his castle, nor his gun, nor any plank or spar. Slowly, so cautiously it might have been thought they feared an unseen foe, they advanced to the very spot where he had lain at anchor, noting the shattered trees and furrowed ground of the islet beyond, where their shot had spent its energies. When they were over the point at which that long iron hull had lain, the young man fleshed from dreams ordered the great wheels reversed, and at last halted, so that they rested as quietly as their opponent had. Then he strode to the rail and looked down, but with such an expression that no one, not even the most brave, dared to look at him. When he lifted his eyes at last, his face was set and grim, and with no word to any man, he took himself to his cabin and barred the door. Okay. I think from this point, we're leaving aside actual, you know, details of of movements of of constellations, and we're go, we're going to a real procession of the equinox story, where essentially the young man is descending into the ship, which is beneath the horizon, and others are going to take his place in succession. One after another, like uh, say the 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 series of suns in the Popol Vuh. Hmm. Cool. So, and then when the eventually, of course, through the procession of the equinox, that which descends will rise again, and that's also according to Hamlet's Mill, uh, the uh, is the lesson of the myths. Hmm. So the sun, the the hero is descending below into his cabin. Others are going to take his place as proxies one after another, and he will rise again from his cabin. 
Yeah, and everything that happens is now what we'd expect. Then the youth that was second to him ordered the ship put about that they might return to the white calotta of the princess, and he ordered also that wounds be bandaged and pumps set in motion and such repairs as could be made begun. But the dead he kept with them that they might be buried on the high sea. Let's go on. Part five, the death of the student. It may be that the channel was not so straight as they believed, or that they had lost their bearings in the fight without being aware thereof, or that the channels twisted, as some alleged, like worms in a lich, when no eye was upon them. Whatever the truth might be, all day they steamed, for the wind had died away, and by the last light saw only that they cruised among islets, unknown. All night they lay too. When morning came, the youth called to him such others as he felt might offer the most valuable counsel, but none of them could suggest anything save calling upon the young man fleshed from dreams, which they were loath to do, or pressing onward until they reached open waters or the calotte of the princess. That they did all day, striving to hold a straight course, but winding against their will among the many turnings of the channels, and when night came again, their position was no better than before. But on the morning of the third day, the young man fleshed from dreams came out of his cabin and began to walk up and down the decks as he was wont to do. Now he's back. Examining such repairs as they had made to their damage and asking those wounded who by the pain of their wounds were awake early how they fared. Then the youth and those who had advised him came to him and they explained all that they had done and asked how they might find the sea again that they might bury the dead and return to their homes in the city of the magicians. At this he looked up into the very vault of the firmament, and some thought he prayed, and some that he sought to restrain the anger he felt against them, and some only that he hoped to gain inspiration there. But so long did he stare that they waxed afraid, even as they had when he had peered into the water, and one or two began to creep away. Then he said to them, Behold, do you not see the seabirds? From every corner of the sky they stream. Follow them. Until morning was nearly done, they followed the birds insofar as the winding channels permitted, and at last they saw them wheeling and diving at the water ahead, so that their white wings and ebon heads seemed a cloud low-hung in their course, a cloud fair without, but thunderous within. When the young man fleshed from dreams told them to load a carronade with powder only, and to fire it, and at the crash of the gun all those seabirds rose mewing and crying, and where they had been, the crew saw a giant piece of carrion floating, which seemed to them to have been a beast of the land, for it had, as they thought, a head and legs four, but it was greater than many elephants. All right, so here we can actually locate ourselves again in the sky. If you follow the great rift up the channel, eventually you're going to come to the huge constellation Cygnus, the swan the seabird. And this is the location of the body of the ogre. It's basically a, it's basically a cross. So you have a, a head and legs for. When they were near, the young man ordered the boat put into the water. And when he climbed aboard, they saw that he had thrust into his belt a great alfange whose blade caught the sun. Now, remember, as I said last time, the alfange, a curved blade, like a scythe, mm -hmm. is the sun. For a time he labored over the carrion, and when he returned, he carried a chart, the largest any of them had seen, drawn upon untanned hide. That's the uh, ogre's fingertip, right? And it's so clear that you don't even have to describe the rest of the journey. They just yeah. they made it up. <laughs> By dark, they reached the Kalata the princess. 
all waited on board while her mother visited her. But when that terrible woman was gone, all who could walk went ashore. And the corn maidens crowded about them, a hundred to each youth. And the young man, fleshed from dreams, took the daughter of night into his arms and led them all in dances. None of them ever forgot that night. The dew found them beneath the trees of the princess's garden, half smothered in flowers. For a time they slept so, but when the afternoon threw backward the shadows of their masts, they were awake. Then the princess bade farewell to the isle and swore that though she might visit every country over which her mother strode, she would never return there. And the corn maidens swore likewise. Too many of them there were perhaps for the ship to hold, yet it held them, so that all the decks were green with their gowns and gold with their hair. Many adventures they had in making their way back to the city of the magicians. This tale might tell how they cast their dead into the sea with prayers, yet afterwards saw them in the rigging by night, or how certain of the corn maidens wed those princes, who, having spent years so long enchanted that they are loath to leave that life, and have in that time learned much of grammary, build palaces on lily pads, and are seldom seen by men. So, uh... Yeah, we have about, what, about a half dozen short stories that Gene Wolfe never wrote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Grammarai is, uh, that's it's magic, it's witchcraft, it's necromancy. So, but all those things have no place here. Be it sufficient to say that as they neared the cliff at whose top stands the city of the magicians, the student who had fleshed the young man from dreams stood on the battlements, watching for them over the sea. And when he beheld their dark sails, smutted by the burning tar that had blinded their enemy, he believed them blackened in mourning for the young man, and he threw himself down, and so perished. For no man lives long when his dreams are dead. Right. So as Severian notes, this is a non sequitur. There was never any explanation for why white black sails would mean that the, uh, that the young man was dead, yeah. right? And Jonas has to explain that to him. Right. Which leads me to believe that this is the latest edition of all that some academic has pinned this on to the, uh, the end of this story. Um, okay. So I want to say, I think I've already, I've already tipped my hat that I, I think I've identified the ogre. The ogre is, is Erebus. I think uh, Gene Wolfe identified this himself, but I believe we have met this ogre in this story already. Curiositas Urthus. Let's go back to chapter eight of this book, where Severian is leaving the Manape's cave, and he's thinking about that thing that made the noise at the bottom of the caves. And he's got this connection to somehow as an issue of memory, and he also has to guess. He thinks he can guess at what it is, which means that this is an event that took place prior to the time of the Autarchs, because otherwise all of that knowledge would be either available to him or in his mind as well. The thing in the cave is not in the cave. The thing that made the noise is the mountain in which the cave is, because that is Erebus chained, as Severian says, to that location, and just like the green man, who is also a walker in the corridors of time. But the green man, because he's chained, can't escape. He can't move through time, because in order to move through time, you also have to move through space. For whatever reason in this world, 
that's the way it works. He is constantly controlled by the showman by because he'll if he doesn't do what he's told, he'll close the flap. I have no idea how Erebus is being controlled, but he is not being controlled by people who are connected to the Autark because Severian doesn't, when he's writing this story, he doesn't know who, what that thing is. He has to guess at it. And I say the way he guessed at what it is and who it is, is because he has read this story to Jonas. And he, he probably doesn't even recognize that it's Erebus. He only knows what that, that it is the, the ogre in the story. Well, if you're looking for other ways that connection makes sense, I mean, the fact that when Severian comes back, the questions he asks Jonas all have to do with Erebus and Abaya. And you're like, why? Right. Why? I mean, like, what what has happened that makes you think of that? You just had like this other crazy adventure somewhere. So why, exactly. yeah. why are you asking about that? And I don't think I meant, don't think I questioned that before, but that, <laughs> hmm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel pretty good about myself. I have (laughs) identified the ogre and I've identified the thing under the man apes cave. And I don't know if they give out Hugo awards for this kind of thing, but if they do, (laughs) they can mail it right over to me. And because remember that Severian, this is all tied into memory for Severian as well. I don't, and I don't know if it's, you, you can interpret that as Severian it hasn't happened yet, but he has a sense of it, and it's happened in his past, the distant past, a time before the autarchs. Or you can say this is he remembers it because it occurred to the first Severian as uh, you know, in a previous iteration of himself, who is, as he said in the final analysis, him himself as well. I didn't know that's where you're going with that, but I kind of I kind of like it. I've been trying to keep that one in my pocket. It's not all that easy. <laughs> But the trick is, you're always thinking, what is that thing at the bottom of the cave? What is that thing at the bottom of the cave? No, mm-hmm. Jonas explains. These th- they are not <laughs> they are not just big. They are like mountain size. Yeah. Mark's going to have fun with it because doesn't Mark just Mark said he just thinks it's uh, like a creature, like some a war thing of the Autark or something like. That. Yeah, yeah, it can't be the Autark though, because Severian doesn't know what it is for sure. He has to guess at it. And that, which is kind of an interesting situation. They, because here you have the Autark storing his gold in this cave. And uh, presumably he doesn't have any idea hmm. what he's, what he's nosing around in. Yeah. And so when the claw goes off, if you assume that it's because of the, you know, the, the magic of the claw or because the first Severian is present and that's why the claw is glowing, then the uh, the Nerebus is is recalling the man apes because he can still, you know, influence them with his uh, with, with his thoughts. And it demonstrates that that he is under the control of somebody who is also associated with the claw. Okay, so that is a big a big claim, James. <laughs> that you have Made a huge connection here and because of this actually figured out one of the mysteries that I would say really is something that is goes down as right along the side with what caused the chaos at the gate <laughs> and the, that and what's under there. Yeah, um, if, if, if I could only get a, a taxology of the creature that Hathor released at the gate that caused all that trouble. <laughs> so, 
so being the skeptical guy, I got a, a few questions just about how, how that would work. Um, so first of all, if that's Erebus down there, then is he actually... Not Erebus, remember, not Erebus down well, there. The whole mountain, everything, all the water the, that's coming out, that's all Erebus. Right, right. So if that's the case, then is the suggestion that Erebus then is actually chained down there? Or is he now waking up in a kind of Well, chained of could be a metaphor. Right. Um, but Severian does specifically say that, it wa- that what the thing down there was chained. I guess that's my question is... In the book, it makes it seem like there's something really scary and potentially threatening down there, but not necessarily something that can come up and get us right now. Well, yeah, I, no, we're... he's he's chained. He's chained. I think that the analogy to the Green Man is exactly what we're looking for. The Green Man he can travel through time, but he can't because he's chained. He can't travel through time because. Apparently, in order to travel through time, you have to be able to travel through space as well. A Severian gotcha. has to move down corridors. The Green Man moves through corridors. He can't move anywhere because he's chained. And now, I don't know how you would secure a being like Erebus into one place. Perhaps it's enough in, in some sense that he is simply on land so that he can't really move but he, he could be changed because I, I, I what's something I could imagine is Erebus moving, creeping along uh, a few feet every thousand years and thus moving into the corridors of time and escaping into the sea that way. So he has to be chained. Okay. So the question then is then does him being chained mean that he's not a threat right now? Because certainly we find out later on that the entire battle in the north is – Abaya and Erebus are behind the Ashians or the yeah. Askians. And so I wonder if, I mean, unless it's some kind of like Cthulhu thing where it's not the physical body that's there, but it's his like psychic presence that's pushing. Well, he does that. That's yeah. how he controls people. Right. That's what, um, what Jonas says is that they send, they, they, they send out their thoughts to influence people. Um, yeah, I don't know how that maybe offering them, you know, knowledge, secret knowledge mm-hmm. and such to get them to follow them and do what they're told. And theoretically, I would think uh, Erebus could do that as well. So perhaps he is still something of a threat. He's he's less of a threat. Hmm. OK, I guess it was just that contrast between whatever the, the creature was being chained and Erebus and Abaya still being like active antagonists. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I suppose if they are. If he is modeling these guys on Cthulhu, I mean, the whole point of Cthulhu is that, you know, even while he's sleeping, <laughs> his, like, you know, his psyche is out there turning Doing people, thing, right. preparing his thing. So I guess, I mean, that certainly could be. Um, and maybe it's just that I'm over overreacting to the, the word chained. But I had just assumed that it was some kind of like ancient thing that's not really a threat anymore, but could be. So I, but I don't know. I don't know. But he, well, he is. I mean, I, there must be a purpose in chaining him. So they must get some benefit out of that. But it is something, I think the timeline is really interesting because obviously the Autarchs don't know uh, that he is is there or what he is. And they're using him to store their, their bullion, it seems. Yeah. So, and, and Severian, once again, Severian has to work out who he's he's really only guessing 
at what that thing is, but he thinks he can guess, which suggests that somewhere in here is some answer to how he was able to guess it. And if you assume that it must be this ogre that is that thing, then you also know that the ogre is Erebus. So therefore you say, well, Erebus is the thing that's making the noise underneath the bottom of the cave. Yeah. And if that story is right, then Erebus has somehow been defeated, right? I yeah, mean, exactly. Whatever the, the ship is, is, has defeated it. And well, in that case, do you have any suggestion or thoughts about who the student is in that case? Like what is it or who is it that might have beaten Erebus? Yeah, well, that is, is so. That yeah, Severian? it's. Is that I, I, it's, it's the, so. I go in a circle. Yeah, I go in a circle, a circle, a circle. Um, if I were had just read the book of the New Sun, then and that's all that existed, then I would say, oh well, then this is obviously Severian. The and the student is the first Severian. But I have Earth of the New Sun, and I can see that Severian doesn't record ever having taken part in this battle. So therefore, I, I say, well, this is, must be the first variant. But if it's the first variant, then who is the student? Because the student, it would suggest that there must have been a proto-Severian, right? Mm. Which is entirely possible. Well, and we do know that, I mean, the hero is called the sun, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the sun, S-O-N. But yeah. it, it seems like the thing that will beat Erebus is going to be the sun, the S-U-N. Um, so whatever else he is the sun like like we talked about represents like clear seeing and light and and you know the white steam rather than the dark occluding steam so whatever the son or whoever he might be representative of he still stands in the place and seems to me at least to do all the things that the The sun is supposed to do in the story so yeah and i guess then if you got the the timey-wiminess going on then it could be it could even be that this is sort of a story talking about how the new sun will possibly eventually beat Erebus. And so maybe Erebus is locked in time from a battle at a different stage. And now yeah. is I, yeah. clearly in the, in the chronological past of Severian's world, but then possibly in Severian's future. Interesting. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm still fuzzy on that, but, I, but at the same time, like we said, it's, it's, this is a weird story that's supposed to do. And maybe the point is that it's not a specific time, right? It's, it's, he's telling a mythic sort of. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, um, it could be all sorts of, of meanings of time. Uh, they traveled through a labyrinth of time, the garden of forking paths. Who knows when or how you defeat a walker in the corridors of time like Erebus. Yeah. It's also interesting that I'm thinking about Abaya. I mean, if if possibly Noctua is something like Abaya, um, then you've got, you know, these other daughters that are, you know, I don't know, are these other, could we think of Knight's daughter as Juturna or is the yeah. other Undines or something like that? I mean, there we'd have to go further to think about how that's connected and that that also gets into the whole thing of we we don't really know much at all about the differences between Erebus and Abaya and and what that yeah well, yeah all they are really mythology we know they're out in, in the sea or were originally yeah. and that they are giant and that they have names that's really all we know and it would make sense that night is somehow opposed to the sun right and 
yeah, in some yeah. way or another. So, hmm. but he's rescuing. He's rescuing the daughter yeah. of night. So, and Juturna, Juturna and, comes to Severian side. We know by the yeah. end of of Earth, she, you know, she seems to, in some way or another, you know, still want to protect him, yeah. or love him. Those I got to tell you the the Megatherians and the followers of the Megatherians are just a wild mystery to me. And I, 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 I'm not sure that they can be worked out, but we haven't talked about this, but it is possible that all of new sun is like a Brown book story. <laughs> and then we, we sort of, we go on the assumption here that everything that Wolf in his head had an idea of how everything actually clearly was going, but I suppose it is possible. He was telling a story that was more impressionistic. That's that's true. That's I think a lot of people do believe that and they enjoy yeah. it because of that. Um, and that's certainly I, how I think the first time I yeah. read it. And I was fascinated by that. And I still would be perfectly in love with the book. If yeah, it was. I'm becoming less enamored with that idea as I go forward. I, wow. Well, he would have had to have thought about this, you know, <laughs> at the beginning and he never would have said anything about it. And um, and then he kind of alludes to it in Earth and the Sun. Um I think he, yeah, I think he thought about more than, and included more than we'll, we'll ever know. Um, yeah. But that is not, that is not the reading a lot of people enjoy. They do, yeah. do not like trying to nail down this story. They yeah. feel like I'm, you know, you're spoiling it. Yep. No, I feel like that the difference between those assumptions of, of what kind of story is lying behind the thing whether mm -hmm. it's worked out or not, that's that's going to be something that will always be there for Wolf. Hang on right. There, so. It's also just true that if you do go with the more impressionistic side of things, um, you can't fill up such long episodes quite so. Because <laughs> yeah. you, just, you just say that things are really cool and weird and suggestive. Over yeah, yeah. The, the impressionistic reading of Wolf is destructive to this podcast. So <laughs> they must in, be stopped. In many ways, that is true. In many ways, that is true. Even if it is a beautiful image, because yeah, I, I, that's yeah, true. there are loads of times that, and I've said it many times that if the stories weren't fun, just on that level, um, that if you couldn't read them that way and still enjoy them, then yeah. Wolf would not be a good writer. Yeah. Yeah. Stop trying to figure it out, man. It's not <laughs> a, <laughs> what did he say in the, the movie Rain Man? It's not a puzzle. It's a joke. Yeah, exactly. So if you, uh, are outraged <laughs> my latest <laughs> curiosity is earthus that is great bring it on uh reach out to us with your alternate ideas your other comments your thoughts your corrections and your complaints that i've done it again now and and we certainly hope that you'll bring them to us on the facebook group the subreddit twitter email or the patreon site and you can find out how to do all that on the show notes Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, clanging at the bottom of a cave, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody. When Confederate forces took the Norfolk Naval Yard, they found the remains of the USS Merrimack. They raised her and converted her into a casemate ironclad ram and armed her with ten guns. Renamed the CSS Virginia, her first military action sank the Union ships Congress and Cumberland, making the Union fleet obsolete overnight. 
In response to this new ominous threat, the Union built a bigger monster of their own, the Monitor. That's all right. It deserves it. Okay, it's up. Which is not, by the way, a story by. Uh, oh shoot! Why? As soon as I say, ah, crap. Who wrote? McD- George McDonald. Princess. George McDonald. Yes. Like the minute I try and make a smooth <laughs> joke, it doesn't work. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go Cut for it now. Out. We've gone through all this work. <laughs> oh yeah. And Takuki, uh, Takuki, stick it out. Ah, men. Ah, my glasses. Freaking old. Okay. Um. Oh, what the, I, I have an explanation for this one. Hang on. No, no, I got it. I, I, hang on. Let me get it. I've, I've got things to say. Here. Ah. Come here. All of a sudden, everyone in the house has to go in and out and in and out. And in, in and, out. and out. Stupid ding is going all the time. It's never, I should just organize what I have. It's always, I will get something else to add to the clutter. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that if I, that I need to write anything down, I'm sure I'll remember it. Always sure at the time. <laughs> I do. I did learn. Like I do now keep a little mini notebook with me for, cause I'm always, I mean, I'm always, I've never tried to like publish anything, but I've always got little stories or poems or something mm-hmm. I'm trying on. And I, I finally at least learned to, yeah, keep that. And it actually helped with when I was um, in grad school because I figured out I solved a problem and it was the kind of thing where I had to write it down immediately um, or else I would have forgotten it. And it mm-hmm. ended up being like the crux of one of the chapters. So, so yeah, I have to keep a little, a little notebook with me at least. But, All right. but I only use it for um, stuff like that. Like Amber mm-hmm. always gets Amber's like, how can you remember the difference between like three versions of Heidegger's lectures on Parmenides, <laughs> but you can't remember to do this one thing? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a it's a mystery. It's a yeah. the philosophers have worked on that for years. Yes. <laughs> I don't think I have anything to say about that yet. Hang on. Let me think. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> 